everybody and welcome to rank it rank it yeah welcome welcome um what are we doing this week brady uh this week we're gonna do the top films of 2012 top films of last year because in a couple weeks we're gonna do our year-end uh, top 10 give you guys a little wrap up oh right yeah 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 well, in a couple weeks, like so, yeah, we, we did weeks. we did 2011 two weeks ago. Uh-huh. Last week we did Disney animated, yeah, and then this week we're doing 2012. Yep. Next week we'll do something uh, else, and then uh, after that we'll do our top ten our of top the 2013. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. So this week we're doing our top seven of 2012. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Brady, why don't you go with your uh, number seven? Okay, my number seven. Uh, this is a tough one because I really love Tarantino's Django Unchained, but I had to move it to number eight because uh, this documentary, I think, is really masterful and subtle and obviously is a very interesting snapshot of our times, and that's The Queen of Versailles, which is about uh, a very rich couple, rich family in Florida. This guy's a timeshare king. And they're building the biggest house ever, like the biggest house, single-family home in existence. And, you know, completely wasteful thing to do. They're flaunting their money. But what it's really about is in the middle of this documentary, the filmmaker had no idea, in the middle of it, the recession hits. So it's about this rich, like unbelievably rich family and how the recession is seen through their eyes. So it's partly critical, but at the same time has this very empathetic focus on you know, to them, they're failing because they're not going to be able to build this extravagant house. And so it's a really interesting idea on, on how the recession impacted this very 1% family. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really recommend this. All right. My number seven is uh, Disney's John Carter. Because I know Brady doesn't like this movie, but... Nope. I think this was a good movie that got slapped with a bad stick because, I mean, the whole thing is in the press even before, you know, just like after box office weekend number one. They're like, John Carter didn't make it. It's 80 million back or 30 million or whatever they spent on it. Yeah. I mean, the production was a boondoggle. Right. But I was really pissed off. I think this deserves an honorable mention. I watched it. It's just an action movie. It's like a fun fantasy epic uh, action movie. And there really aren't many of them. Like, Stargate is in the genre as well. Um, maybe uh, Jumanji would be around this genre. Stuff like that, where it's like... Uh, entering a different world. It's entering a different world, and it's uh, there's a lot of set pieces, a lot of just action. You know, there were some things in this that, uh, like, the chick actor in this, what is it, Kate Beckinsale? No, it no. was, what, like, Lena Olin or something? Kate Beckinsale Standin. Uh, I don't know, who was it? No, it wasn't Lena Olin, that's 300. I don't know, whoever it was, she wasn't very good, so that, that was definitely a low point. I'm not saying this is a great, great film of all time, but what I am saying is it's probably better than 70% of films of this type. And I thought it basically got slapped with a bad rating just simply because, you know, all these news stories on BBC and MSNBC and like just everything was just like, John Carter, big flop. And I'm like, bullshit, you can't call that shit like fucking box office weekend, especially with a budget that big. I mean, it really pissed me off. I thought I went and saw it. I had a lot of fun. It was fine. I mean, like I said, it's not the greatest thing ever. But it deserves more than what it got. And they basically killed the idea of that ever being a franchise, which I think would have been a much more interesting franchise than, you know, another Spider-Man franchise or a Thor franchise or a fucking Transformers franchise. Like, fuck that. Like, this would have been a nice, interesting, uh, heartfelt fr- uh, franchise that would have been based on kind of one of the foundation books of sci-fi. And it just pissed me off that they, you know, the media basically slapped it down as if it was Waterworld. So, it 
has to be be my number seven. That and because uh, most of the movies I saw this year weren't that good, and Ready Ready insists that there are a bunch that I've never heard of it that had, are really good. There's so. some really great ones, but also a lot of really good ones. I think. Okay. Well, anyway, I think that's a perfectly good reason to put that as my number seven, and we'll move along with Brady's number six. Okay, uh, my number six is uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, uh, the film that was in the hunt for Best Picture last year. It came down to Lincoln and Argo. I think this is a far, far superior film to Argo. Uh, And the criticism it got slapped with was that it it was uh, too boring, too talky. But what I think is... In its own kind of way, it's the most revolutionary thing Spielberg's ever done because he completely relinquishes a lot of his directorial... What is it again? Ticks. Lincoln? Oh, Lincoln. Um, And so he actually just becomes invested in the debate and the negotiation and the quiet kind of politicking uh, that went into getting the Emancipation Proclamation passed. One of the most interesting scenes is when this Tommy Lee Jones character, who's a very passionate idealist, the decision he has to make isn't to give this big speech that is totally in favor of his principles. It's actually to back off a little bit off of his principles. And so it's very wise about that. And obviously, it's got one of the greatest performances uh, of recent times from Day-Lewis. So, yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic, illuminating look at that time. Yeah, I heard Lincoln was good, but I still haven't seen it. Oh, yeah, you should really check it out. I did see Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, though. Oh. <laughs> the other Lincoln. That was pretty good, too. I think that's somewhere around my number four. Yeah, something like that. Well, don't give it away. Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess I shouldn't give it away. But anyway, um, yeah. Anything else to say about that, Brady? Uh, no, no. It, it's it's great. I think it's a great movie. This is moving fairly quickly. All right, my number five, or no, my number six is um, Frankenweenie, actually. Uh, Tim Burton's... Um, Throwback to his short, I believe it was a short that he made way, way, way back when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. His, uh, it was a stop motion short. Right? And it was a live action short. It was a live action short, and this was a stop motion feature. I haven't seen the original, but um, I really did like this. I really, I re- actually, I adore all of um, all of Tim Burton's stop motion stuff. There's really just nothing like it being done in cinema. Period. Like. Nobody does stop motion anyway <laughs> in the first place because of the whole, well, we could just do it in a 3D environment and then not have to do all that time and energy and make things, you know, things will look just as natural if it was a 3D uh, model as opposed to, you know, like something somebody actually made and lighted and fucking moved bit by bit and like plan the whole, <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> uh, and I just don't understand why people... I, I'm a big proponent of earlier mediums because earlier mediums um, are the things that have paved the way. F- like, think of any really good film, regardless of whether or not it's shot on digital or um, actual celluloid. It's at as good as it is because of what came before it. It's as good as because the process that used to have to be done with film, a digital film is able to be good. And if you don't understand that previous process, I cannot really see you know short of uh creating another process of some sort i cannot see you being able to pull off what you know wells or um uh like howard hawks or even like howard hughes who's been fucking spent shit tons of money just doing an incredibly elaborate production because he wanted to make the biggest baddest movie ever what I'm saying here is Frank and Weenie, <laughs> which I've kind of gotten off the topic of, uh, was great. It was heartfelt. It uh, moved just as quick as I needed it to for a, a film of that sort. And that's another thing is because uh, because it's stop motion, it uh, it's a shorter film, usually because of the amount of production it takes. And, you know, just the laboriousness of the idea of doing it um, creates a situation where you do have to trim out all the fat. And you do have to go through all that process, which is touching on what I was just saying. Actually doing a film instead of digital. Like, you can shoot reams and reams and reams of digital. It doesn't cost you a goddamn thing extra other than maybe the actor's time or the director's time or the lighting man's time. But, I mean, you can't do that with film. Now you've, like, just exponentiated your cost by tens of thousands of dollars just because you shot an extra seven minutes. You know, so... Yes, stop motion is something that should stay, and sadly it probably won't. 
and film production in the classical sense is something that should stay and it probably won't and therefore frankenweenie definitely has to get um this kind of mention from me that's fair enough well at least uh the studios the studio that did uh Coraline and Paranorman is standing up for that that's true as well yeah I didn't love Paranorman but I do love Coraline uh, anyway, my number five is uh, Michael Hanukkah's Amour. Uh, basically, just the story of a couple, an elderly couple, and the wife suffers a stroke, and it essentially is just witnessing the process of dying. Uh, this is a film that rubbed some people the wrong way, but I found it really fascinating and unflinching because uh, the director is known for having this very pitiless clinical method about him, and he kind of holds on to that, but the very powerful emotion underlying it. This is a couple that's been <coughs> together Excuse all me. their lives. Uh, I don't know. It's this interesting mixture of just completely unflinchingly looking at this, but also, you know, uh, zeroing in on the high emotion of that. And it's, yeah, just a really uh, interesting, well-acted examination of, of death of something that we'll all have to face. So yeah, a more number five, never heard of it. Really? It got nominated for Best Picture and Director last year. This year was the first time I've been able to watch an award show because you lived at a place where I could do that. Oh, okay. I mean, I know you had a party last year, too, but I had to come late after work, and then the Oscars were over, and then uh, my girlfriend got really mad at me because I wasn't like in the mood to make out because I had just gotten off work, and I was like, look, uh, I don't really want to make out in front of our friends. I just want to sit, take a half hour's worth of deep breaths, and uh, drink a beer, and I'll be ready for human consumption. Mm-hmm. That's what I have to say about a boar. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people. For some reason, I got all stuffy. Like, uh, we, uh, Brady and I went out in the cold. Oh, maybe it's because I'm eating milk duds. So maybe that's causing the problem. That's what all that on the oh, mic yeah. is. But um, my number five. This probably shouldn't be my number five. Um, I move things around. Mm. Nope, not really. All right, my number five is Hunger Games, which wasn't near as good as this year's sequel. Um, but it was good. I enjoyed it. It was a little abrupt. It was a little too fast. I had to gloss over so much stuff because there's a lot to put in. And anything based on a book. Short stories are actually a better medium for film than books <coughs> now we're even <laughs> after i get the god bless you that or uh, excuse me excuse me but, uh, god bless you thank you oh uh, you're welcome um <laughs> number five hunger games um j-law's great she's a, a proficient actor the guy who plays Peter is eh, whatever. Ter- he's terrible yeah whatever he looks a lot like you though really his doughy face is just Doughy, dead-eyed face. Yeah, that's, I mean, Josh you, Hutcherson. I'm sorry if you're listening. You have you have bright eyes though. He doesn't have bright eyes. He has kind of like. So if not for my blue eyes, I would have the same just dull expression as that as that guy. Well, I mean, you smile more with your teeth. Ah. He kind yeah yeah. But I mean, when you keep a closed lip smile, try 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 it right now. It's an excellent pod. Yeah yeah, just like him, except for your. Bright blue eyes. Um, they're dreaming, Brady. Oh, for all you Sherlock fans right now, we're holding hands, too, and it doesn't mean a thing. Don't mean a thing. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so Hunger Games, good movie. Love the dystopian kick. Um, love Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson's amazing. And uh, Yeah, Games. I really like him in that. Yeah. And um, very good, very good. So Don't totally get five. the love. Like, a lot of people really seem to like Elizabeth Banks a lot in that and she's an actress that I like but who's she play Edie she, yeah she's Edie I it's you a little whatever. over the top yeah it's supposed to be but. I think Hunger Games is half a good movie and the weirdest thing is that when it starts to kind of suck like I'll just say when it starts to suck for me is when the games start they get all the actual dialogue stuff right and then the games are completely neutered well I mean I feel like it was it was cool and then the games start, and uh, I don't really believe the maliciousness of, of uh, the other team. By the way, spoiler full podcast, always anything we're going to talk about here, we might spoil whatever for you. Yeah. 
So just going to let you know. But I didn't really buy when, like, you know, the people are supposed to be really malicious, like, fucking sadistic bastards. Yeah, wouldn't like, it be more interesting if they weren't? Right. Well, well, they're supposed to be. But the fact is, it didn't come across that way in the film. They they weren't good enough at being malicious assholes. They seemed to be just as clueless as whatever the fuck, you know? No, yeah. It, it just, like... Cause, see, because for that part, other than Jennifer Lawrence, who I think is a tremendous actress with a really, really bright future, the rest of them seem like CW actors to me. Oh, yeah. Like, next totally. on Vampire Diaries. Absolutely. And um, not so big on the Lenny Kravitz is uh, oh, but- Cinna. I, I, I like the character of Cinna. I just think... Um, Lenny Kravitz kind of spoils it for me, actually. Kravitz still has some goodwill from Precious for me. Well, no, I like Kravitz. I just don't like him as Cinna. I no, feel you're like, probably right. I feel like it's like I feel like a lot of people like him as Cinna, um, but they like him as Cinna. Then they read the books. Then they go, "Yeah, Cinna's Lenny Kravitz," and now they have it in their head that Lenny Kravitz is Cinna. And uh, when I read the book, I was like that doesn't look like Lenny Kravitz. You know, when I was painting with my mind's eye as I was reading the words. And I'm like, why did they use Lenny Kravitz? Probably because he's Lenny Kravitz. But <laughs> You know what would have been better is if they'd let Kravitz keep his tread- trademark like long dreads, and then he had them up, like put yeah, up but, on well, his Yeah, well, he cut those off in like 2004 or something. Yeah, like but then that. like he could have them put up, and someone could try to touch them, and he could be like, hey, don't touch my Cinnabon. <laughs> and that's hunger related yeah i see and cinnabon because he's a black jew or ah because we'd have a bun and his name's cinna it's a cinnabon oh i get it it's uh, i didn't quite okay. uh, yeah. I, I understand now okay here's another thing about hunger games in general like did you really have to like instead of candace katniss instead of peter Peta, because she's a hunter and he's a bread maker he, he's a piece of bread and you know, like, what else is there? Uh, Gail? Cole? Gail? Gail? Well, uh, Gail's a name. That one just doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you do this with the other characters, but not with a bunch of them? Like, Edie? Like, it's, does she eat E? <laughs> E.T. <laughs> does she look like a small alien or something like that? Like, I don't, I don't quite understand that. So that, like, that tongue and cheekness kind of bleeds over from the book into the movie. That's not the movie's fault because I mean it's obviously just following the book, but it's kind of like, I. It makes sense when you do umbrage, and it makes you know right. But I mean that's just like a one-off character, and they do it with a couple other characters in Harry Potter, but not like the main characters. Yeah. Right. Isn't that just kind of hackneyed? Uh, maybe a little. Yeah. I still want to see the second one. The second one's really good. The second one is much better than the first one. Yeah, that's what I hear. I, I in fact, I would put that as my number five and consider as well, if I, if it were the same year. Oh, this. Oh, I see. <laughs> okay. Well, Actually, that's cool. I, well, I would. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess not because I did. I've already started formulating my. If, if, if that one were made in 2012. This one just wouldn't even be on the list, and I, I would put that there instead. I wouldn't put them both up there. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Actually, no, I don't. I don't even know what I'm saying. So uh, let's just disregard that comment. Hunger Games. Uh, good try. Do better next time. Oh, you did. Thanks. Uh, anyway, Brady, what's your number four? <laughs> okay, my number four is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which is. Uh, it seemed to be a polarizing film. Oh, the other Anderson. Yeah, the that other Anderson. Um, and to me, at this point in their careers, probably the better Anderson. But Wes, Wes isn't far behind. And in fact, we might get to him later on. Um, but yeah, uh, P.T. Anderson... I think Wes has more style. but I think uh, P.T.'s got tons of style. Uh, Finish your anyway. little blurb, and then we'll talk about that for a minute. So yeah, no, the master uh, stars... Joaquin Phoenix as a very troubled man returning from World War II. Uh, and he's a bit of an alcoholic. And he not just an alcoholic, but like the Walter White of alcoholics. He's able to mix concoctions out of like, I don't know, like antifreeze and shit. Uh, and so it's about this troubled young drifter in the wake of World War II who essentially falls into a cult, a Scientology-like cult. And so it's this really... Well, first of all, the performances are like shatteringly good. Phoenix, in particular, uh, it's a landmark Phoenix performance, 
And it's, yeah, just basically I think about the kind of mentality that would cause someone to even fall into a cult-like religion in the first place. And then just an interesting exploration of the dynamic of the master, the cult leader, and this would-be follower of his. And it's just tremendously beautifully shot and well-acted. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a movie that will be wrestled with for years to come. So it's, it's tremendous. Yeah, also I haven't seen that one. But on the topic of Wes Anderson's style versus P.T. Anderson's style, what exactly is P.T. Anderson's style? Well, P.T.'s style isn't as easily reduced, I don't think, to... Okay. I mean, because Wes I get Anderson the aesthetic. has I, the When I think of P.T. Anderson, thing. I think of the constantly moving camera. And, like, actually, remember in... Uh, wait, uh, I guess it was on Film Spotting. Did you listen to Film Spotting live, live show? Uh, yeah. They They say, like... David O. Russell really knows how to move the fucking camera around. And I'm like, kind of. Yeah, no, no. He's I would say P.T. Anderson knows how to move the camera around better than David O. Russell. Oh, but certainly. He's just kind of doing the faux sayzy sort of thing. David O. Russell, I, I actually really like O. Russell, but I do he's too, not but a, he's a pastiche artist. He's like, he's like Lucas. Yeah, he's not a smudge on what P.T. Anderson has going on. Uh, Anderson's one for I'm, the ages. Yeah, and to be honest, they weren't comparing him to P.T. Anderson or anything No, like I that. understand. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, um, yeah, when, you, when you're going to sit there and say, that guy knows how to move the fucking camera around, you better be talking about somebody who does it better than David O. Russell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, David O. Russell does fine, but he's, it's an imitation. Right. Well, what I like most about a wrestle is more the improvised electricity between his actors. But anyway, what is the style of P.T. Anderson? Like, how would you quasi-characterize it if you can't fully do it? I don't know if I even could, but it's... I don't know. Are you talking about his writing? Are you talking about his directing? Are you talking about his cinematography directing? Are you talking about his actor directing? Or I mean, I suppose we are talking about his directing, Uh He's just got this sense of something otherworldly. Like, even in ordinary situations, he did it with There Will Be Blood. Uh, you know, there, there Will Be Blood, the first image we see, uh, makes the Earth look almost like an alien planet. And this huh. Daniel Plainview is almost this creature born of greed. Like, well, he's born out of the yeah, Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean, but you, you also take that way differently than I do. I don't take it as otherworldly. I take it as, like, hyper-real. It was our planet all along. <laughs> Damn it! You blew it up. You burned all the oil. You and <laughs> no, but I mean, when I when I see what you're talking about, I look at it as hyper real, and that's what I think. Yeah, of when no, when I, mean, I think of PT Anderson, well, but then I wouldn't call it naturalistic though. It's very no, no, like hyper real, like yeah, okay, yeah, more real than real, like more human than human, uh, more uh, human than uh, human. Sorry, that that's the backing track to Oh yeah. More human than human. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, uh, and uh well I'll finish up, but Anderson's got a new one coming out this year. Wait, wait, wait. We haven't compared that to the style of Wes oh, Anderson. Oh, of Wes Anderson? Yeah. Because I like stylistically, Wes Anderson's very well defined and very clear what he does with it, right? Like he love he loves the stationary shots, long takes, um, and then like switch views and you know, and, uh, L- less less bringing the camera in and pulling it back out or anything like that, but more like flip, 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 right? And he's very much a fan of the widescreen, although it looks like Hotel uh, Budapest, the Grand Budapest Hotel, is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, the Grand yeah. Budapest Hotel. It looks like that's shot in 3 by 4 Okay. As opposed to widescreen. I, w- I was watching the preview, and it's all like, you know, old-style movies, slightly, like no anamorphic lens, which is weird for Wes Anderson right. because he's very much synonymous with up until um moonrise kingdom uh he always shot two 2.4 by one like which is okay. uh, standard cinema scope which is what i'm shooting in for my film um Ooh. and uh so yeah now i won't be an anderson copier because <laughs> he's starting to do different things uh, <laughs> yeah i mean a- a- wes anderson he's he's meticulous he's got very meticulous art design and also likes to play around with this like Really interesting ideas of nostalgia, I think. Like, if you think about what Royal Tenenbaums feels like, it's like, you know, a New York that probably never existed, but it's it's what I feel when I listen to a Simon and Garfunkel song. It's just this very arty, uh, bohemian feel. So, yeah, no, he's he's really good at playing off of nostalgia and in putting tons and tons of details into his frames. And, and it's color. 
Yeah, and he, the color. Like, you know, especially in stuff like Moonrise Kingdom, I'm sure probably one of us will have this on our on our rankings. But um, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, with the yellows and the blues of Moonrise Kingdom, etc. Like, you know, just like I was reading about it and, and because I was researching different films for my film. Um I'm doing black and white though because I'm poor. Um <laughs> Hey, I paused it. Oh, oh, food, food, food. I meant I paused it. The, uh, the dry, the washer. Is that okay? I'll make it go again when I. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you. Did you have any? Oh yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Cool. We'll be having a couple minutes. I think we're halfway through. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Ah, what was I saying? Oh, oh, oh yeah. I was looking at the color processes. I'm shooting black and white because I'm poor. But, um, yeah, no, uh, he went with the Super 16 look, which was the other, you know, the um, uh, reversal, color reversal stock, which is what I wanted to use. But that would mean that I'm pretty much going to have to do double the amount of film developing. And I'm also going to have to make the temperature be exactly 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't know if I can pull off in a bathtub. (laughs) So, yeah, not going to do that. Going to do black and white. But, um... Yeah, just, 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 both of them have this thing where they take complete ownership and complete control over, like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson will, will develop the film himself. He will grind his own lenses. Right. Yeah. Um, all that kind of stuff, just because he, he, because he's a control freak and he can't release control over those things. Uh, Wes Anderson seems to be better at delegating, but then maintaining his cohesive product in the way that he's stylized it. So, um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's my feeling on their their styles. Uh, maybe separate but equal. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, you know, like I I love Wes Anderson, uh, and I probably owe some of the films that I don't hold in as high of regard a rewatch. You know, particularly uh, the Life Aquatic and Rushmore. I'd say I need to rewatch. Life Aquatic is critically just bereft of of champions, and um, I don't understand. Well, I. I mean, other than me, it seems to. If I'm considered a critic at this point, the the thing that's holding me back from it, and that I can't even judge until I've reseen it, because honestly, I saw it the one time in '04, I think, when it came out. It. Not that this is necessarily a problem, and this is always a bit of the Anderson style. Uh, it seemed a bit emotionally distant for me, whereas his better ones still have that meticulous quality. But Royal Tenenbaums has tons of like, really interesting emotional beats going on underneath the surface. And you know what? And I might as well just transition to my number three, Rob. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, yeah, because I did... What did I do? No, wait, no, because oh, wait. it's my turn. Oh, right. wait. No, that's right. It's your turn. No, go ahead. And, oh, and sorry. No, no, we'll get back to it. No, no, go ahead. Go to your number three, because I'll do my number four afterwards, which I'll have a lot less to say about. Okay, well, sure. Um, Moonrise Kingdom, I think... What's really cool about that... You know, Tenenbaums might still be my favorite. I think I have Tenenbaums and Fox as my favorite still. But Moonrise Kingdom has an interesting emotional theme, an emotional through line to me. And it's only like a 90-minute movie. So it zeroes in all of Anderson's skills for composition and attaches it to these really interesting ideas about youth and innocence lost. And at the heart of it is this idea of young people fall in love foolishly maybe but who the fuck is anyone, particularly adults with all their fractured, dysfunctional relationships, to call out the reality, the, uh, you know, the veracity of those emotions? Like, who are you to say that young, stupid love isn't just as true as any other kind of love? And so, yeah, it, Moonrise Kingdom, I just think, is a beautiful movie that, you know, you never uh, feel it lag at all. Uh, it's full of humor and a deep wellspring of emotion. And in the years to come, it could even be Anderson's number one out of his current crop. I'd have to see how it ages, but right now for me, it's aging really, really well. So that's why Moonrise Kingdom is my number three. All right, so my number four is um, Looper, because that that was good. Yeah, no, Looper's I don't really good. remember it uh, as well. I think I think I want to say that the kid who plays like the very small kid at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, which that part of the movie actually rubs me the wrong way for a couple of reasons. Me but too. I, but that kid was a really good actor for being what, like four or something like that, right? 
Uh, yeah, that's something I remember shit. going like, wow, that was really good for like that tiny of a child. You know, that's like a uh, level of the kid who was an E.T. sort of level, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but um, Looper, Looper was great. I love the concept. I love the idea. Third act kind of got a little hairy, I would say. Yeah, and you, you've got Bruce Willis becoming a baby murderer. I don't know if yeah. it juggles that very well, like if it can land the emotion of that. Yeah, and, and also like, you know, the character you're identifying with is a younger version of the character in the future. Because the premise in the movie would be that when he gets killed, he actually goes back in time to tell his uh, younger self the blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. I don't think that's even spoiling anything. We're allowed to spoil things here, but that's not even spoiling anything. That's like what you learn. I think that's yeah. in, I think that's in the plot synopsis if you go to like the landmark on Berkeley Shattuck and like read it. <laughs> I think I actually read it before I went and saw it uh, there. At any rate, um, Looper was very good. Uh, I really liked the style. I really liked the the kind of the the medium sized brush that they paint that world with. You know? Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's like the color swatches are very um, tend tend to keep to the blues and the grays and the browns, but you know, in large stripes, but not too large. It's not all the same color. And it, I, it, the tonality of, of the way the color was used was very striking to me. I'm, I'm struggling to remember it, which might be a mark against it because it's not as memorable. But I remember I remember it in good standing other than maybe some problems in the third act. Right. You know, it's the guy who did Brick. Yes. So, yeah, for me, like, I think the first third is one of the best movies of the year. And then that farmhouse stuff isn't quite as interesting. But I think it's a major moment... Uh, a major step for Ryan forward Johnson. for Ryan Johnson. And so, yeah, in years to come, I think it'll be seen as a huge growth for him. Speaking of which, I love, I love Brick. I love Brick, too. I, I, I really like uh, Ryan Johnson's tongue-in-cheekness with that sort of thing, like kind of acknowledging the fact that it was playing off this weird sort of subgenre of a, of a very well-known noir genre. Um, All right. But, and I think he should do more of that. I don't... I was kind of um, disappointed that he didn't really do that at all with Looper. Oh, uh, well, how do you mean? Well, okay, so, I mean, they have that kind of shit in there that's, like, really tongue-in-cheek, like, like uh, if you have a problem with me, well, then write me up or suspend me. But, you know, like, I'm going to send you down to the principal's off, like, that sort of thing. Right. Like, the kind of cop calling, hauling you into the jail, but instead it's high school. Right, right. Yeah. That really, like, kind of tongue in cheek, creating a subgenre out of a genre, which I thought was really cool. And I wish he would have kind of stuck with that, that trope, you know, at least for his sophomore effort. Oh, uh, well, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying, actually. But I liked what I liked, though, is it proved he did have another arrow in his quiver. And it's almost something approaching horror because the scene I really remember in Looper is Paul Dano as an old man being slowly cut apart. Like, right. I was like, God, Johnson, I did not know you could do something. Like, that upset me like, <laughs> yeah. for days. Yeah, that, that was pretty upsetting. I, I, yeah, I do remember that being both beautiful and horrific at the same time. Oh, it's nightmare fuel. Yeah. <laughs> Pure, unadulterated nightmare fuel. <laughs> so, well, I think, Rob, you get to do your number three when yeah. you're done with this. My number three is a absolutely stellar... Stellar comedy. Um, it was produced by Todd Phillips. I'm not sure who it was directed by, but I'm going to find out right now within the moment here. Um, except for the fact that if I accidentally put a space in when I'm searching something, uh, it actually doesn't bother to go. Oh, maybe you meant Project. Uh, Project X, which is directed by uh, Nima Noriznade. No, no wonder I don't know who he is. It's hard to pronounce his name. Um, yeah, so freshman director, um, Narima Nur. Brady, please read that. I I can't read and spell like you. Okay, I'm giving this a shot. Oop, I lost it. <clears throat> Where'd you go? At any rate, it was produced by Todd Phillips, which obviously he looked at it and said, "Oh, well, okay, this is my kind of bag, so I'll let you." Nima Nurizadeh. 
uh, go ahead and, and direct this film that you've pitched to me. You know, somehow he got to Todd Phillips, it looks like. And Todd Phillips went like, yeah, I'll bankroll that. Um, so anyway, it's um, it's basically the most epic party movie that you could ever see. It's uh, Have you seen this? Uh, no. Okay. Um, just think of movies like Can't Hardly Wait or Fast Times at Ridgemont High or something like that, except it all centers around one day. Ooh, it should have been on my one day list that we did a while back. Oh, yeah. But um, it's all one day. It's a couple dorks throwing a party, and the party gets bigger, and it gets bigger. And I'm actually not going to spoil this for, for, for people because, like, let, let, let's just safe to say I can say this, and it'll sound like a spoiler, but you'll never believe it when you're watching it. It gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and then you go like, well, they can't top this, and then they always do. And it's like it's one of the most interesting ways of building a plot to a boiling point that I have ever seen. Like it's it it's basically just um, just talking about it is enough to give Brady indigestion. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he can't he can't keep anything down right now because of how much I'm talking about it. Um, uh, a couple foibles against it, which for some listeners might be a, a pro. This. Um, given I don't think my girlfriend or my ex-girlfriend listen to this, it's incredibly misogynist, okay? <laughs> so there's just boobs everywhere, and, like, the boys are like, you know, they're 17-year-old boys, so their whole thing is, I'm going to figure out a way to, you know, get girls to take off their tops and blah, blah, blah. Um, it does have a slight note of, um, oh, wow, I get to sleep with the most popular girl in school? Oh, what about my girl next door sort of thing? Uh, where, you know... Her and I have been like best friends forever and always kind of had a crush on each other and blah, blah, blah. That sort of moral dilemma. Um, and then they also put a midget in an oven and it's furniture. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> kind of a lot of horrible things happen in this. But it's kind of it, it registers true to me because I remember my adolescence being very much that way. Like, you know, if the jock guy could grab that girl's ass in the hall, he would. And if he could get her to take her top off, he would. And if they could have a party where everybody goes skinny dipping and then film it, they would. So <laughs> it's not like it's untrue to life. It just kind of fits into the patriarchy. And uh, I kind of would look over my shoulder while I was watching it and going like, okay, my girlfriend's not anywhere seeing what I'm watching because she'll get mad at me. <laughs> anyway, uh, fucking fantastic well put together film that um, I've never really seen it a uh, film build that way it, it kind of is like a one act play that stretches the length of an entire film but keeps you entertained the whole time like you don't need a break because of the way they do it so yeah, that's my number three all right um, my number two film uh, was proof that the Sundance Film Festival, which, you know, in some years had been kind of flagging a bit, can still, uh, still has value for producing filmmakers who just are really, really original. And I can't think of a more original bolt out of the blue than uh, Ben Zeitlin's Beasts of the Southern Wild. I love, 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 love this movie. Uh, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's basically set in kind of a fictional, magical, realist post-Katrina New Orleans and about a community of people living in an area where the government has told them they shouldn't live, where there's always danger of flooding. And, yeah, just about this small community. But it's really about this young girl uh, played by the phenomenal six-year-old performance of Kavanjanae Wallace, who uh, I hope continues as an actual actress as she ages. And it's about her relationship with her father. But her father's, in some ways, kind of a bad father. And yet it's about this man who's kind of a reluctant father teaching his daughter how to survive, how the world is changing. And so it's about their relationship. And I don't even know how to describe it. It's just phenomenally filmed. And it's got the craziest, most surreal images. But it's filled with heart and wonderful music. And, yeah, this is, this is a wonderful movie. Um, and yeah, that's my number two. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I can't help you out there. That's great. So anyway, my um, my number two is Moonrise Kingdom. For all the aforementioned things about uh, Wes Anderson in general, 
very true to this film. Breaking from his normal style, shooting um shit, shooting Super Sixteen, uh, without a widescreen lens. So it was a, uh, basically a sixteen by nine format, um, and somehow I guess he got his hands on a Super Sixteen gate, um, which is really interesting to me because I kind of want to do that mod to my camera, but since I have an automa uh anamorphic lens, I don't need to, um, because I'm gonna shoot widescreen either way. But anyway, uh, went to reversal stock to use the kind of yellows and blues. Really tailored that uh, color uh, coordination after that. Um, it was Willem Dafoe, right? Am I thinking of the right character? Mm. Oh, wait, who? Willem Dafoe was one of the main cap counselors. Oh, no, Edward Norton. Oh, that's right. Norton was... I'm, I'm confusing Life Aquatic guy in shorts with uh <laughs> with moonrise kingdom guy in shorts that's right edward norton uh not a long time collaborator with uh with that but really like a great surprise role like the kind of guy he was almost young cusacky in his boy scout niche you know mm -hmm. i looked at him i'm just like that's a that's like uh edward norton looking like a young john cusack even though i think it's the same age as john cusack now and john cusack has filled out in the face could never pull that off again but um, <laughs> yeah, that, and then also <laughs> Bill, Bill Murray, <laughs> Bill fucking Murray. Um, that movie was great. It was probably one of the most honest, heartfelt sort of, um, things Anderson's done. Just, you know, taking two kids of such a young age, and, and I don't know anything about either of those actors, but, um, yeah, he obviously did a phenomenal job directing the directing them in like uh it's weird because their actions are so adult but also so so infantile at the same time like the nervousness of of just being like a, a kid who hasn't even quite yet hit puberty or maybe just barely hit puberty um kind of in that situation you know it's just like the kind of thing you th like i'd think about when i was on vacation you know, and I'd be at a hotel and I'd be like, oh, there's a girl over there in her bathing suit. And I'm like 10 and I want to go flirt with the girl. But I'll go splash water at her, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like ever so cute and ever so uh, well put together. So, um, yeah, I don't know quite now. I, it definitely deserves a rewatch for me. I don't quite know how he did it, but whatever he did, it was the right thing. So, number two. All right. Well said. Well said. All right. Um, my number one. Uh, <laughs> my number one is a movie that when it came out uh, had a bit of controversy swirling around it and I'm going to give my opinion on that controversy I find it completely asinine because while Catherine Bigelow in her masterful Zero Dark Thirty does present torture without explicitly commenting on it it's hard to watch this movie and get any sense other than that something in the national soul in our souls has been lost and the kinds of actions we had to take to find Osama bin Laden, the kinds of actions we felt we had to take to make ourselves more, quote-unquote, secure. And so, yeah, I, I think this movie just, it's so interesting. It's so intellectually, informationally detailed. It reminded me of Zodiac in that way. And it just kind of throbs like a, like a headache and a heartache. And so it's, I just respect the hell out of it for how unbelievably detailed it is in the procedure. And all of that is not just for completest sake it's not just for the sake of you know telling the story in as much detail as possible it's to make you feel the absolute ache of the amount of time and the amount of effort and dead ends that went into this because at the end of the day what it's going to posit what it does posit is given all of that all of that and all of the uh, lives that were lost as a result of the process how worth it how redeeming was it to finally catch this one man and it's anchored by just so many beautiful ensemble performances. Uh, easily my best movie of the year. That's cool. Um, I haven't seen that, so I can't comment. <laughs> oh, man. However, um, the possible reality that I see what you're talking about, I can see why it would be that way. However, I don't, don't think we actually found that guy. <laughs> or, <laughs> or killed that guy. They just dumped his body at sea and went like, nah. Yeah, we got him. Which to me is like, beliefs aside, 
Islamic beliefs aside, I don't think that the U.S. government would be that interested in preserving them to the point that they wouldn't bring them back, bring him back, and parade his body to somebody to do an autopsy on. Well, even if this theory is true, Rob, I don't think it damages the movie because in the end, it's not even about what was accomplished, about who was caught. It's about everything that went in, the time. Like, there's this interesting line. I, I love this line that Chastain says to uh, who's is one of the state secretaries, one of the big defense secretaries. Oh, Leon Panetta. Uh, played in a short role by James Gandolfini. I'm glad you were able to answer yourself because uh, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't, I can't, I couldn't have done that. <laughs> so it's it's pretty late in the movie when she's finally maybe built a case to have have them go after the guy, and it's been like something like ten years, like many many years, that they've been doing this. And so Gandolfini's character sits with her in a cafeteria. Is like, okay, well, like, so you've been in this like since you graduated high school. What are you going to do after this? And she just looks blankly and says, this is all I've ever done. And that's kind of, for me, just a, a really bold, interesting statement on the post-9-11 mentality. Sounds like our country. Like, what the fuck else <laughs> do we have? We have put so much into just this one Or even revenge. pre-9-11. Like, what, this is all we've ever done. But anyway, I should invade, stop there. Yeah, invade other people's Because funny. I feel, Rob, you might have... A really excellent revenge movie yourself. Yeah, yeah. Mine's, of course, Django Unchained, as I'm sure Brady would have uh, predicted. You told me. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, did I tell you? Well, you you were saying your list out loud as you were Uh, winnowing it. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, no, I didn't tell you. I told the air, and you just happened to be uh, within within a gnat's fart of what I said. It's just I've never heard that term. <laughs> Within a gnat's fart, I like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, Django Unchained. Uh, two things single-handedly revitalized the idea that I might want to watch westerns. That's good. That's good. Yeah, because that's uh, that's a big thing for me. I think I mentioned it in the podcast of this week. If if you're only listening to Rank It, and you don't like Carnivorous Couch, well, please give us another chance. And also, I did mention. Django Unchained was one of the things that revitalized my my wanting to watch it. That and Gunslingers, which is basically a fucking video game that Django Unchained, and you get to shoot a whole bunch of guys, and they all explode like blood like that. Um, the criticism about the violence is a bunch of fucking bullshit, first of all, just have to say. Um, or the glorifying of the violence. I want to say specifically that this film probably sets the tone in the American public for people being willing to go and see this year's excellent film by Steve McQueen, 12 Years a Slave. That's an interesting idea. I, I think I think if you had just come out with 12 Years a Slave without this film being out there, without this kind of, like, revenge... Because, I mean, like, this is in no way 12 Years a Slave. This is in no way trying to drive the amount of sympathy, um, you know, towards... Um, like for the abolitionist movement and and all sorts of stuff in Twelve Years a Slave, which is also a very interesting book. And the bio, there's a biography. Isn't there a biography of Salman Northrup? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not gonna I go ahead know. and say that. I'm pretty sure there is. I remember just studying briefly that when I studied the abolitionist movement when I went to JC after um, after college just for the fuck of it. Um, at any rate. Um, this movie set the tone for Americans being willing to accept sitting down in, in the theater and watch 12 Years a Slave. If it hadn't been for this, there would. I know that there's a lot of people who haven't seen it just because they know they'll be too uncomfortable. Right. But I definitely was more comfortable having seen this side of it to see the alternate side of it where it is really uh, on on it and like beating you in the head with a hammer about the sadness, the horribleness of it. Um, you know, with Django... Uh, we actually get to be with Django and be behind Django and feel like we can identify with a character who is overcoming this as opposed to um, basically... I like 12 Years a Slave. It's a very excellently made film. However, it really does not show uh, the fact that there has been any progress made or it doesn't have that kind of theme of progress at all and i feel like django fills that hole and that's something that we as a culture just don't identify with 
We don't need it. We're told over and over again that racism is alive and well. Yes, it absolutely is. But it's definitely better. <laughs> like, we're getting better as a, as a culture, and I think that this film taps into that, the idea that Django's able to go get his revenge or that he's able to overcome the bounds uh, of his chains at every turn. He's sent, wait, he's like a slave, freed a slave, goes back, and, you know, he's sent to like a work camp, basically, <laughs> At the end, Spo- once again, spoiler for the podcast. Um, but I mean, and you know, he just overcomes every uh, obstacle, even when he loses the mentor who was theoretically giving him his agency. Even when, um, uh, fuck, what the fuck is Doctor Schultz's name? Doctor Schultz dies. Doctor King Schultz. <laughs> yeah, Doctor King Schultz. When he dies, um, you know, it shows that he really can stand up on his own, and he doesn't need a white man to, you know, basically be his agent of. Although he did train him, anyway. Th- we should probably watch this and talk about this at some point in time. But I mean, he just trained him to be able to kill. That's right. But I mean, he was with him, helping him with the whole situation, the right way to go about it, the way to figure out a way to get this plan through done, and that. Uh, so that uh, white man agency towards black man white man dies black man still has agency important message kind of devoid in all our media um furthermore it was a fucking ball of fun <laughs> great great performances by um by leonardo dicaprio especially samuel jackson like if, if i didn't know that was samuel jackson you wouldn't have known it was samuel jackson like didn't even look like him. <laughs> I was hugely happy when uh, Waltz won supporting. Uh, oh yeah, and, and Waltz, of course, great actor. Hope to see a shit ton more from him. Wish we would have been seeing him all the time that he's been acting. But you know, international actors don't really get their their day in, in uh, loveliness mm-hmm. here in Film America. Court. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, great film. Really important film, I think. The idea that it's so violent and that it's reveling in the violence and saying that the violence is a good thing somehow is a bunch of shit because, I mean, 12 Years a Slave is just as violent just because the tone of the movie is different. It's different. Like, come on, people. Like, Tarantino's always been violent. Um, it's always been over-the-top violence. It's always been stylistic. It's always been um, kind of a way to not be a violent fucker but, you know, see violence. Well, I've bristled at the idea that his violence is empty ever since that was slapped on Pulp Fiction. I just, I've never been able to agree with it. And and neither is he. And, you know, there were plenty of interviews going around. I think he was interviewed by several different people where he just went, like, kind of sat there silently and seethed and just went, like, I'm making a fucking movie. It's a fucking movie. <laughs> like, you won't hear that same sort of, like, the violence in, in 12 Years a Slave is... By far more graphic than any of the violence in Django, and uh, yeah. and incredibly disturbing. But yet you don't hear that kind of criticism thrown on Steve McQueen. So what the fuck? Anyway, um, yes, <laughs> that's our rank it, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's that's it. All right. Well, hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back next week with something different that we'll uh, we'll do the ranking on, and then um. After that, we'll do our, our top 2013s. Top 10, actually, yeah. that, that week. That'll be extendo version. Anyway, um, catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bitch! <laughs> <laughs>